Today is part four in a six part series through the book of Amos. And I entitled today's lesson House of Cards. Uh, what do we know about a house of cards? Falls down. All right. Excellent. Uh, the subtitle of today's lesson is The Danger of Living a Fantasy Faith. And I want to begin with a story, a story that perhaps you might relate to. Last Christmas, this last Christmas that we just passed, uh, we bought a bunch of different gifts for our kids, and we buy a lot of our presents from Walmart because it's cheaper, all right? So we were buying a bunch of different uh, gifts for our kids, and and then what we do is we try to keep them out of their reach and put them in a section in the garage, and we put a blanket over them so they can't find them. Hopefully they're not listening to this tape or CD. Anyway... <laughs> So we decide to go out to Walmart, and when you go to Walmart and you buy a bunch of different items, they have that little spinning thing at the end where they put them in little bags and they spin it and put them in more bags and spin it and put them in more bags. So when you leave, you got to grab a billion tiny little bags. Well, we had a, a bunch of different presents at that point. We grabbed them all up, and we took them back home, and my wife uh, ended up, she was wrapping some presents just for looks under the Christmas tree, and then she was taking the rest of the gifts and she put him into the garage under this blanket. And so about a week and a half later, she goes out to examine all the different gifts. And she was putting them in different piles to make sure they were even for the kids. So she's sorting this stuff out. And she said, hey, Lance, uh, something's wrong. And I said, well, what's the problem? And she said, do you remember the remote control car and the puzzle? They're not there. We didn't grab them. And I was like... Well, I remember buying them. I remember exactly. I'm wondering if when we went to go take all the bags, we forgot one of the bags on the little spinny thing and they didn't grab it and hand it to me. So I'm thinking, well, gosh, that's a drag. We totally paid for the stuff and we didn't get it. Oh, well, she said, no, I think you need to go get it. And I was like, what, what do you mean? I got to go get it. She's like, well, you got to go in and tell them that we forgot our bag and go check with them. I'm like, honey, it's a week and a half later. No one's going to remember. Oh, Mr. Hahn, I've been waiting for you to come back and pick up your puzzle. No one's going to say that. They're going to think I'm completely trying to rip them off. Now, you have to know something about my personality. As outgoing as I am, I will not return anything. I don't believe in it. I hate returning stuff. I feel like it's the ultimate act of I don't know, horrifying uh, uh, to be able to hand them back and go, here, I use your stuff. Can you have it back? I'm like, well, you're the one that bought it. Keep it. I mean, it, I don't understand the whole concept of returning stuff. My wife returns everything. All right. She went back to the hospital with our kids trying to return them. It was like, what, what are you doing? You got to keep those. You don't have the receipt. So we exchanged actually for other kids. But that's not important. I, she returns everything. I don't return anything. So she wants me to go back to Walmart. Well, I'm scared to death. I'm like, I don't know what they're going to they're judge me at Walmart. They're, and so I decide to be a good husband, um, apparently to create an illustration, to go. And I went to Walmart and I walked up and I kind of sheepishly said to the lady, I said, I know this sounds really stupid. But about a week and a half ago, we took all our bags and I think we forgot a bag. Is there any way you guys keep track of that kind of stuff? She said, well, actually, there's a book. We have a folder that whenever our bags are left, we mark down what's in the bag and so that we have record of it. And you just show me your receipt and I'll, and I'll make sure that you get the items. So I was like, oh, that's pretty darn organized. That's cool. So I'm waiting at the register. She goes, well, let me go check the book. So she goes back and she checks the book and she said, what did you say the items were? And I said, it was a little remote control car. It was Lightning McQueen. OK. And I said, and it was a little wooden puzzle for my daughter. She said, all right, well, let me check it. She goes, well, it's not in the book. 
she goes, but you know what? I trust you. Go back, grab the items, and go ahead and take them home. So I thought, wow, that's pretty trusting for Walmart to trust me on that and to say, you know, well, yeah, you can take the items home. So we get them home and uh, put them under the blanket with the rest of them. And about a week and a half later, Susie was checking the presents under the tree <laughs> to see what was under there. Oh, what do you think she found? <laughs> a little puzzle on remote control Lightning McQueen. <laughs> I'm like, you are killing me. No way. I am not going back there. You will march your little tail back there and tell them what you did. So <laughs> anyway, we got it back. Here's my point. I, this whole time, we had ripped off Walmart. We had completely stolen items, and I didn't feel bad about it. I didn't know about it. I didn't have any guilt feelings. There were no alarms going off in my head. There was no reason for me to think that I had just ripped off a store. I was completely peaceful in my ignorance. Now, let me ask you, is it possible for someone to live a whole life of faith, be totally convinced that God is pleased with them when in fact he is not? Yeah? You know, it's really funny because we have a tendency to go, we look at all these other faiths and we look at other denominations and we look at other religions and we say... They are so deluded. How in the world do they not know that's bogus? Oh, it's totally obvious. What, and they think that's legit? They're willing to die for that? Are you kidding me? Boy, they must be stupid. You sure? Well, you think they're more or less intelligent than you? I'd say it's about the same. And you really are arrogant enough to think that you're not deluded? You really don't want to go back and ask the question to figure out whether or not you're living a lie because, oh, it's everybody else that's making the mistake, right? See, I believe that many of us can construct a house of cards. We can create a religion of our own understanding. We can manufacture a God that we want to believe in. We can make a Christianity that we like. And the most loving thing God can do is to pull out the bottom card. The whole thing shatters. And we see it as a bad thing. What do you think you're doing, God? What, you're going to rip away my ministry? Is that what you're going to do? Everybody at church knows that I've been in the church for 25 years. And now you're telling me that what I was doing was wrong. I was going the wrong direction. I was handling it wrong. You're telling me I don't have a faith in you. You're telling me I'm not connected to you. Everybody respects me in church. You know that. Why would you tear it down? Why would you do this to me? It's unfair. You made me start over. And he said, nope, I made you start for the very first time. The most loving thing God can do is to tear down that building and have you begin to build a real house. The story we're about to read in Amos talks of Israel and much of what they knew, what they were doing was rebellion. But there was a big part of delusion. There was a big part of ignorance where they really literally believe that what they were doing either God didn't care about or God didn't notice they literally believe that they could live however they wanted to live and God would still be for them God would still fight for them God would still be their God and call himself proud to be with them they really were deluded enough to believe 
that he was on their side. But God's not on anybody's side. God's on his side. It's whether or not you're on his side is really the question. You see, there's little bits of delusion in our life, in our faith, in our Christianity. And the other day, I had a gentleman that I went out to lunch with. Never met the guy before. Really sharp guy. Really intelligent man. I respected him a great deal. And while we're sitting there talking, I'm realizing this is a safe guy to talk to. And and so I start talking about something I've been wrestling with. There's some sin in my life, but I'm not so sure it's sin. I got it totally justified. So I start talking to him about this stuff. And I'm looking at it and I'm, and I'm going, but you know what? I don't even think this is wrong because I have this argument and this argument and this argument. And, and, and I said, well, I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm kind of justifying it. What do you think? Do you think, do you think it's, do you think it's wrong? And he looked at me and he goes, you wouldn't have told me out loud unless you thought it was wrong. I was like, dang it. I hate smart people. <laughs> I was like, Note to self. Never talk to that man again. <laughs> you know? And I realized that when something that I was doing did not line up with what I was saying, there was incongruity and that bothered me. I didn't like it. It felt awkward. As a matter of fact, when I'm talking about it out loud, isn't that the point of confession? I'm talking about it out loud. It feels pretty gnarly. It feels horrible about the fact that I began to say that I'm involved in sin when I call the Lord my king. How much of that is in our lives? Are we really pretending like there's none of that? That we see everything real clear? We're doing everything just right? Are you kidding me? But I think it's worth a question here and there as to whether or not we really believe what we believe. The fill in the blank in front of you is this. If God is indeed king, then isn't that what we say he is? If God is indeed king, then we will surely act like it. If we don't act like it, he may not be king, yeah? Israel was blinded to their lack of connection to God. Are we? If you haven't already, turn with me to Amos chapter 5, verse 16. It is page 650 in the Bible's handed to you. Amos chapter 5, verse 16, page 650. Just going to read the first two verses here, and then we'll pray and we'll get into the Word of God. It begins like this. Therefore, this is what the Lord, Yahweh God Almighty, says. There will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this morning and thank you for an eye opening that, Lord, we seek to honor you and please you. And yet, Lord, many of us are living in delusion. Clearly, you've been working on areas of my life that are embarrassing to talk about, embarrassing to mention. And, Lord, ones that I have justified myself on. And yet, little by little, you keep making me talk about it as if it was a little irritation in an oyster. And I would hope that you would make it a pearl. I ask, Lord, that in our lives, as we see this stuff, as you illuminate it in the glow of your spirit, that we would have the courage to address it and that we would do so rightly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
begins with a loaded phrase. The first word of our passage is what? Therefore. Therefore is a phrase that means, or a word that means, something has occurred, so now something is going to happen, right? So what occurred before? Well, that was last week. If you were here last week, you remember the message was, God had tried to get Israel's attention first by blessing, and that is indeed what he will do with you, is he'll begin to communicate his presence to you by blessing. If that does not work, or if that begins to fail, he then begins to remove things out of your life. Just like you would take out maybe something from your child's room and trying to get their attention and then you need to alter their behavior. In the same way, he begins to remove things out of our lives in order to try to corner us, to try to get us to face him. And he'll say, look at me. You're out of line. Knock it off. But he had stripped everything away from Israel. He just kept messing with them and trying to get their attention. But they kept turning off his voice. They kept shutting down his prophets. They kept ignoring his word. They would not come face to face with their God. Therefore, judgment was coming. Therefore, at the beginning of chapter 5, the first verse says that I will now take up a lament concerning you. What's a lament? A funeral poem. Why do you hold a funeral? Because someone died. Now he begins to use the death language, the language of a funeral to talk about weeping and wailing. And that's where we pick up our story today. Therefore, this is what the Lord, that means master, Yahweh, that's the capital L-O-R-D there in your passage. Therefore, the master, Yahweh, God, Elohim Almighty. This is what he says. There will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. Hmm. Sounds pretty complete, don't you think? It's not very localized. He uses words like all, every. Those are kind of complete. It's a nationwide judgment upon northern Israel. The farmers will be summoned to weep. And the mourners to wail. Once again, why are people crying so much? Because someone has died. If there's a lot of crying, there's usually a lot of death. But then it says, the farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. That needs a bit of explanation. Let me give you a little cultural context. In our modern mindset, in our Western view, this sounds odd. But do you realize that in Eastern countries... Even to this day, there are professional mourners, people that are paid for all practical purposes to act. They are paid a wage to engage with a family to cry out in distress. As a matter of fact, you become a really good mourner that people want to hire if you can cry really, really loud. It's almost like a trade that you can get involved in. You can be a professional mourner and people will hire you. To come into the funeral procession and weep and wail, that's who it's referring to, is professional mourners. Now, to us, the whole idea sounds rather stupid. As a matter of fact, the whole concept sounds insulting to me. If I die and you got to go hire somebody to cry for me, that's a drag. Why can't you cry for free? If you're not sad, I don't want someone else coming in and acting sad. Right? 
Now, that's our view, but let's take a look at it from their viewpoint. It might have a complete reversal. Imagine that in their culture, it's not so individualistic, but it's much more corporate, much more uh, community-based. And so when they mourn, they mourn together. Then, let's say, they believe that your death is so significant in their life that they're willing to pay good money to hire people to come in to demonstrate to the town what great sorrow is in their hearts. They are willing to bring in actors that will create an atmosphere of sadness so that while you weep and wail, you can look outwardly and have your outside just like your inside. That you are willing to bring other people in to shout at the top of their voice to let the whole town know of your sorrow. That's how they would view it. The point here is it says it's going to bring in the farmers to wail. That simply means this. The amount of death that is going to occur is going to be a far higher demand than the professionals can handle. So they're bringing in the layman. You're even grabbing people off the street. You're grabbing people out of the fields and going, you got to come weep with me because all the professional mourners are busy. That's how much death is about to occur. He said what? There will be wailing in all the vineyards. You guys, what is made in vineyards? Fruit, wine, yeah? Wine is the party drink. It's a happy drink. In the Bible, whenever it talks about wine, it talks about blessing. It talks about a positive thing. And in general, it's used to talk about gladness. He's saying this will be so devastating that even in a happy place, there will be weeping and wailing. There is no happy place. It's sadness. Why is all this death occurring? Why is all this heinousness coming upon Israel? What is the cause of their destruction? What's the next phrase? For I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. There is a very, very huge festival, holy day, for the Jewish people called Passover. Y'all heard of it? Okay, Passover is pretty popular, all right? It's one of the big ones. Why? Because it's a holy day or a holiday that commemorates a very significant event. The significant event is this. After Israel had been in bondage to Egypt for over 400 years, God got them out. But it got them out of that nation by bringing a series, a succession of ten plagues. The last was the most serious, the whole reason why Pharaoh finally said, Get out of my sight. I'm done with you. What was that plague? But the death of the firstborn. Do you remember? Now, if you watch the movie, The Ten Commandments, it was a green fog that went through the town. All right. What had happened was God sent the angel of death to sweep through Egypt. And as he went through, he began to slaughter the firstborn in every household. The only way he would not, as he came to the home, was he would look upon what? The front door. And on that front door, what needed to be there but the blood of a lamb. They would dip it in the lamb. They would paint the blood across the top of the door and down the side. That was a symbol of a covering or being a worshiper of Yahweh. And so the angel of death would pass over that house and go to the next one. That's the phrase Passover. But what does it say here? I will pass over you. I will pass through. 
You don't want that. You understand? Egypt had him passed through. And what was the death toll? God said, your problem is me. I'm coming to town. And when I come through as the angel of death, everybody dies. He moves on. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. The Jewish people all love the idea of the day of the Lord. You talk about it at parties with each other. Oh, I can't wait for the day of the Lord. You know, when the Messiah comes, he's going to come raining down with righteousness. He will come in and he will convict the pagan nations of their sin. He will come down to execute judgment upon wickedness. Isn't it going to be a glorious day? Our enemies will be defeated. Israel will be raised up and we will be a mighty nation once again, led by our Messiah. They talk about it all the time. It's almost like Amos is going, I'm sorry, what did you say was going to happen? He will come and he will rain down on wickedness. What if you're the wicked one? Well, well he's, he's coming, coming for the enemies. You sure? I thought he was coming for wickedness. What if you're the problem? You sure that day is going to be a good day? Sure that's what you want? Oh, because God's coming. And he's going to execute judgment. I'm just not so sure you know what side you're on. I'm not sure it's a good thing, guys. He said this. You want to describe what it's going to be like? Verse 19. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Here's the story. You walk outside and you go, oh, my gosh, a lion. It's going to eat me. Ah, you run to the other side and run smack dab into a bear. Ah, the bear's going to eat me. You finally get home. You get inside. You shut the door. You're breathing heavy. Oh, I just got out of that. Lean against the wall and pow, you get bit by a snake. He's like, well, you think you can escape me? Oh, I will chase you everywhere. There's nowhere you can go. You keep thinking you escaped here. You escaped there. You escaped there. I will hunt you down and I will find you. And wherever you rest... There I lie in wait. Judgment will surely come upon your house. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness. Check out the next sentence and tell me if God's not a little teed off. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Okay, how often does God use hate, despise, and cannot stand all in the same sentence? What is he usually talking about? Sin, pride. He's talking about church. Boy, that's a blast. What does he hate? Check this out. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Wow. How can that be? Does not God want our worship? Does not God love to hear his children sing? Does not God love the gifts that we bring? We seem to think so. That's why we keep doing it. You just did it all morning. Then what's the problem? Why is God so angry? How is it possible that what we try to give as a gift, he sees as a negative? I got a story for you. You may have heard this story before, so if so, just pretend along like you haven't. First girlfriend I had, as I was closing out my time with her, I was 16 years old, late bloomer. All right. Now, this 
relationship was the epitome of dysfunction. If you looked up dysfunction in the dictionary, my little face is right there. All right? Because I believe that no matter how dysfunctional she was, Jesus would want me to forgive her. So I did what Jesus would do, and I stayed with her. What I didn't realize is that Jesus might set boundaries, too. Whoops. Anyway, so the point is, is that I'm in this really dysfunctional relationship, and I'm hanging out with this gal, and Valentine's Day comes around. I'm 16 years old, so I drive down to my green hatchback pinna with orange interior, and I come driving up to her house, and I'm bringing a gift. I have a card, and it has little hearts and bows and such. So I put that all in there and I come up and I say, hey, happy Valentine's Day. And I give her my present and everything else. And she gives me a present and a card and it's really neat. And she goes, but you know what? I can't hang out with you today. And I said, well, why is that? It's Valentine's Day. You're my girlfriend. She said, well, my dad has asked me to spend some special time with him. Now, her parents are separated and she didn't get to hang out with her dad a whole lot. And so I was thinking... What would Jesus do? So I said, you bet, absolutely you can hang out with your dad. You know what? That's terrific. No problem at all. I'm going to step out and I'm going to head home. All right? Now it's a half hour between each way. So by the time I almost get home, I get a call. Guess who it is? It's her dad. And I said, hey, what are you calling me for? Aren't you hanging out with her? He said, oh, no, that's why I'm calling. She wasn't hanging out with me. She's hanging out with her ex-boyfriend. And I don't like that guy, and I think you need to drive back down here and have a talk with her. But I took her back. (laughs) Here's my point. My point is this. That day, how did I feel about her gift and her card? Did not the very thing that she gave me become a bitterness as a matter of fact it would have been better had no gift been given at all right the very sight of the gift in the card turned my stomach and so it is with god if we do not attach our heart behind the meaning of the gift the gift is an insult because it seems to represent something false God said, I hate it. I hate your church. I hate what you're doing. Do I want worship? Only if you mean it. I'm sick and tired of you singing songs you don't believe. I can tell by the way that you live, you don't see me as king. Stop singing it. Stop bringing me sacrifice when you're doing it with the money that you just ripped that guy off with. Stop assuming that I'm an idiot. Stop treating me as if I'm garbage. You come to me with respect. You come to me with honor. You come to me with a loving attitude. That is what I require. Otherwise, the gift that you bring is horrifying to me. What does he really want? Verse 24. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never failing stream. He said, how about you stop the whole church thing till you get your act together? How about you stop hurting other people? How about you stop oppressing the poor? How about you stop ruining the justice system? How about you stop playing games with me? Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? The answer to that is kind of. You see, Israel, in the 40 years of wandering after they came out of Egypt, sometimes they were true to God, sometimes they followed other gods. 
it was all kind of mixed up together. Ladies, let me ask you a question. How would you feel if the man in your life said, honey, you are my one and only, just like those other two girls? Any value in that? It's exactly what Israel said to God. As a matter of fact, he said, let me remind you how you treated me. Verse 26, you have lifted up the shrine of your king. Now, you can either take that for face value, as it says here, and they lifted up another king, meaning another God, and it would be perfect reading. Or you can take it for its literal translation, which it says, you have lifted up the shrine of Molech. What's Molech? Molech is a Canaanite god, a pagan god that Israel got tied into serving. He was a nasty God. As a matter of fact, one of the ways to worship him, one of the holiest ways to worship this pagan God was to burn your children alive on his altar. And Israel got tied up to that. As a matter of fact, the statue would stand out. The statue of Molech would stand out as if the your arms were held out 90 degree angle from your body. And it had a little stone there that would hold out. And underneath it, they would burn a heated fire of flames all around it. And they would heat it up to such an intense degree that you then take your little children, your babies, and set them on to be burned alive. And that's who Israel was serving. He said, not only that. You have lifted up the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. The direction of Damascus, right past Damascus, are the nations where Assyria was coming, where Babylon was coming. Says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. He said, oh, you served me kind of. But you are always adulterous to me. You were never true to me. You stayed with me only a little while while it served your needs. But when it no longer served your needs, you turned to someone else. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. What is Zion? It's the holy name for Jerusalem, the holy city. But here's the issue. Although Amos was from the south, he was ministering and the whole book is talking to the north, except for a few places. Where is Jerusalem? In the south. So once again, he's looking back at his buddies back home and he says, woe to you who are complacent back home. Don't think that we're excluded from this. Judgment will come upon us as well. And indeed, though the north was taken out in 722 B.C. by the Assyrian Empire, the south was taken out in 586 by the Babylonian Empire. Judgment was coming. They just had more time. Woe to you who are complacent, who are apathetic, who are lazy about it, who don't care in Zion. To you who feel secure in the north, in Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Woe to you who think you're important, because everybody treats you like you're important. Beware. It's funny how we believe that if mankind treats us with respect and fear that somehow God's supposed to follow suit. That if everyone else in this world seems to go, ooh, you're a big dog, that somehow God's supposed to be nervous around us. God doesn't care who you are. God's no respecter of persons. He doesn't care whether or not you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. He could care less. We are all sinners in need of grace. Amen? 
Amen. It doesn't matter to him. And so he said, I want you to have a warning. Those of you that think you're too important to be involved in this process, I'm coming for you, too. He said, I have a little uh, field trip for you. Verse two, go to Kalna. That's a city in North Syria, a prosperous city. And look at it. Go from there to Great Hamath. That's also in northern Syria. Then go down to Gath in Philistia. That's the Philistine region in the southeast coast. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? In other words, those are almighty cities that have fallen in the past and they're going to fall again. I mean, I don't care how big you think you are. You will be devastated. Period. You put off the evil day and bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge. That word is sprawl in drunkenness on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like King David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowl full and use the finest lotions, but you don't grieve over the ruin of Joseph. You guys are willing to party it up. You're willing to be in luxury. You're willing to kick back. As a matter of fact, you won't even wait for the wine to be poured into a glass. You're like, just grab me the bowl. I'll just chug it down like that. Then you sprawl out all over the place and, oh, you better watch out. You might get dry skin. So you want to use the finest lotions, even though your whole nation's going to hell. Are we seeing a mismatch here? It's like, where are your priorities? What's going on? Well, you know very well that you don't want to know. You're living in your luxury and you want to do what you want to do. Meanwhile, there's signs all around telling you that my judgment's coming and you will not alter what you do. You don't care. So into yourself. Woe to you who are complacent. He said this. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself. Yahweh, God Almighty, declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and I detest his fortresses, meaning what makes him feel safe. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. It's funny when God says stuff like I'll swear by myself. Don't you think it'd be odd if I said that to you? I so swear by Lance. Everyone's <laughs> like, ah, you're just being dumb. Okay. Why wouldn't you swear by something else? Because there's nothing else trustworthy. The most trustworthy thing is God. So you literally have to say, you're looking around, I swear by me. <laughs> if I'm God, it's all I got. I swear by me that I will destroy. And then he begins to paint a picture. These are called word pictures. He begins to paint a picture. If ten men are left in one house, they too will die. And if a relative who is to burn the bodies comes to carry them out of the house and asks, anyone still hiding there? Is anyone with you? And he says, no, then he'll say, shh, we must not mention the name of Yahweh. Here's the picture. I want you to picture a devastated city as if it's a darkened place. There's smoke cloud blocking out the sun. It's dark and dismal and gray. There's so much death and plague everywhere you look. There's dead bodies. There's weeping and wailing and moaning. And as you're walking through the dark streets, ten men may have survived, but they all gather together to shield themselves and hide. But because of the death, because of the rot, because of the decay, plagues and disease will consume those men that are hiding there. 
Then throughout the city comes a nearest relative whose job it was to pick up the bodies and bury them. But because of the death and disease, they're carrying the dead bodies in a huge wagon to burn them in a pile. As they come rolling up on a house, they knock on the house door and they say, is anybody alive? And one person answers the door and they said, I'm here. And they said, is anybody in there with you? And they said, no. And they said, shh. God passed over you. Don't draw his attention. He'll kill you too. And he moves on. In other words, the terror, the dread, the fear of God will be so extreme that nobody even wants to say his name because they're afraid they're going to attract his attention. That's how severe the judgment will be. For the Lord has given the command and he will smash the great house to pieces and the small house into bits. Then he uses a very odd phrase. Look at verse 12. Do horses run on the rocky crags? Does one plow there with oxen? All right. I had no idea what that meant, so I had to look it up, right? And the rocky crags seem to indicate cliffs of rock, like the rock face. He said, do horses run on the face of a cliff on rocks? You're like, no, that's dumb. He said, well, do oxen plow on the side of the cliff? No. That's dumb. He said, right, so are you. He said, as absurd as that is, as crazy as that is, as ridiculous as that is, you've turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. What you think you can go into my backyard and treat people like garbage and I don't see it? What you think you can act however you want to act as if I'm not going to know? That's just as absurd. No, you don't, you don't act like that. Not in my nation. You who rejoice in the conquest of Lodabar and say, did we not take Carnaim by our own strength? For the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, O house of Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Lebo Hamath to the valley of the Arabah. Here's what he said. He said, oh, you're all proud of your military accomplishments, huh? Did you take over that city, Lodabar? Wow, you're pretty proud of that? Nice. You know what I think of it? I'll change one little word, one little letter in that word. And now it went from Lodabar to Lodabar, which means city of nothing. You got nothing. Well, you took that over? It's a joke. Oh, you took over the city of horns, the power of the bull. Wow, you guys are tough. Wow, good for you. I'm going to bring in a city that will wipe you off the map. I will bring in a nation that will utterly destroy you from the very top of your city that you just took over that. You're real proud of that top northernmost city. You're pretty proud of the top of it. That will be the gateway by which I will bring the Assyrian Empire to wipe you out. And I will tear you down from the top to the very bottom of your territory. What's God saying? I think he's pretty clear that he has a problem with the way they're living. And what they're believing. And I guess our message for us today is this. Are we living in pretend? Have we examined our faith? Do we know what in the world we believe? Do we have a clue? Are we hanging on someone else's coattails? Is it not personal? Are we just doing the church game? Is there something that's inconsistent in the way that we act and what we say about God? Because I know there is in my life, and it's embarrassing. 
If Israel was deluded, is it possible that we're deluded? I guess it's worth asking the question at least, right? Because you can't make Christianity mean whatever you want it to mean. It just means what it means. Jesus told you what it meant, and you don't get to bend it. You don't get to go, you know what, I love the core of this. I'm just going to add on a little bit. No, you're not. Because then it's not Christianity anymore. It's something else. And it doesn't save. I'll tell you that. And I fear that in some way I keep remaking God in my own image. You ever heard that phrase? I fear that in some way, some shape, some form, I keep concocting what I want to believe so that it fits my lifestyle. But that's not okay. It's not a right to make it just be something else. It's not a right to just go, well, I love what Jesus does here, but he's kind of missing it here. And I don't think he really wanted me to do this. I think I'm cool doing this. You don't get to pick and choose. You take it, all of it. Or you don't take it at all. Now, I'm not telling you that if there's any inconsistency in your life, you're not saved and you're going to hell. That's not at all what I'm saying. If I believe that, I might just end it now. Because I am not consistent. Because I am not perfect. Because I don't got it all sorted out. I believe in a God that's full of grace. I believe in a God that extends mercy. I believe a God that forgives sins. I believe a God that the whole time while I'm sinning, in the act of it, Jesus is interceding for me. That's what I believe. But I also balance it with the fact that I've got to be realistic. And the realistic part is I keep saying I think God's this, but I live like he's this. And at some point that should bug us. Right? That's all I'm trying to say. Does it even bother you? Because with Israel, they're totally convinced that God was on their side. They were shocked to hear that he was not pleased with them. Had they miss it? I don't know. They're just as smart as we are. Are we missing it? As we leave today, consider in your heart and pray and say, Lord, would you hold my hand and walk with me? through my life walk with me through an inventory and stop by in your patient way and say though I've died for that and though you are cleansed I don't like that you walk into another room and you say though I've covered that by the blood of the cross that's bugging me and as you walk through Lord remind me that you died for me because Satan is the accuser and if you don't walk with Jesus hand in hand while you're doing this inventory, you'll just feel like garbage. And isn't that what Satan wants? Take it to the other extreme. Satan will sit there and go, you're nothing. Look at you. Nice. Call yourself a Christian? Whatever. Oh, you're real consistent. You know what? If you're going to be inconsistent, you might as well just ignore the whole thing. Isn't that what Satan would want? But wouldn't it make more sense if you walked hand in hand with a Savior that says, do you understand I'm your defense attorney? 
I'm here to make sure you're okay. I love you. Always have. Died for you. Provided for you. Care about you. And when we get done with our walkthrough in your house, I'll hug you. And I'll tell you that we can do this. Is that not healthier? Because we're so quick to just say, forget it all. Can't do it. Can't handle it. I'm out. Stop being so extreme and reactive. Balance back to the middle and walk with him in his hand and say, Holy Spirit, if you show me something, give me hope. Shine your light on it and then show me a place to go put it in the garbage and figure it out. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for a reminder that though, Lord, you will not tolerate us hurting other people. You still love us in the midst of our rebellion. Thank you, Lord, that you would give us the real story. That, Lord, that you would not tolerate injustice. That you are a good and right God. And at the same time, you're tender and compassionate. And, Lord, you understand where we're coming from. You're just not okay leaving us there. Lord, would you begin to change us from the inside out? The transformation would be part of the process. And that as we submit our lives to you, little by little, you'll make us into the image of your son. All the while, keeping us secure in forgiveness and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.